Um, yeah, thank you very much for coming tonight. I certainly did not expect so many people, um, but that's nice. Uh, this uh, a topic I'm very passionate about uh, and uh, happy to share it as we're very happy that the library is now available to be shared with anybody uh, who's able to come here to see them. So. So there we have uh, Marshall and I'm the little one, uh, and those are my two sisters. Um, <clears throat> my involvement in cataloging the library of Marshall McLuhan is largely one of chance, uh, that I happened to be born into the family that I was, uh, that I happened to be in the right place at the right time uh, and available to take the project on my dad says I got stuck with it, but um, it's way more of a privilege than a chore. Right. Uh, Eric inherited the library from his father, uh, but aside from a selection of the books which he still used in his own work, uh, as his father did, the majority of Marshall's collection had been sitting in boxes for many years. Uh, most were packed away after Marshall's Center for Technology, Culture and Technology was closed following his stroke, his inability to keep his position at the University of Toronto. Um, <clears throat> Eric had decided that the time had come for the library to go to a new home where it could be made available for study. But before that could happen, an inventory had to be made of the collection and it had to be better packed for the eventual transfer to an as yet undetermined location. So, in the last few months of 2010, I began to make an inventory of the working library of Marshall McLuhan. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, this is the inside of that smaller barn with the silver front, which is my dad's current study and library. And that's the inside. Um, <clears throat> I guess the first thing to mention regarding the actual process of inventorying this collection is that I had no experience whatsoever at doing anything like it. And no direction was given above the end result being an inventory of all the books, magazines, journals, and papers uh, sitting in boxes in the big red barn. So I went basically by instinct. In the real world, the successful applicant for such a position would not have been me. <laughs> but I was very comfortable, as you can see. Um, what I did have was some familiarity with the work of Marshall McLuhan, mostly through osmosis, and I read a lot, so I know a bit about books. Aside from that, I was in the right place at the right time. I had a computer with a generic <coughs> spreadsheet program, which I'd never used, but I figured it out as I went along and I sort of autonomously expanded the amount of detail uh, entered to be as broad as possible as it was obvious that there was more to these books than simple publishing data. There were somewhere around 200 boxes of all different shapes and sizes with books, papers, magazines in various physical condition from good to fragile, mildewy and falling apart. 
The boxes themselves were also of varying sizes and conditions. Most of them used liquor boxes. What began as an if not boring, then certainly arduous task, soon became much more interesting as I began to really appreciate the amazing project I was involved in. I mean, I knew that it was going to be an interesting project, more priv privileged than a task, but I didn't really know just how exciting it would be at times, and I certainly hadn't thought of what the collection really meant as a whole. Opening a new box became an event somewhat like opening a long-forgotten treasure chest, though there were more mundane elements. So here I have a desk full of books, so those were all packed into one box. Um, and down beside me there is a destination box, so I kept them small. Um, I raided a couple hundred from a local winery, so that they all be a similar size and, and weight. Uh, and began my task, which was really to make as complete an inventory as possible in as short an amount of time as possible. Truly, the task could have been completed more quickly, but not by me. Someone who had little or no interest in the subject could have done the job in half the time, Though I spent about a year and a half to complete my inventory, which ran, as Anne said, to over 6,000 line items, I could have taken much longer. I think I did it actually fairly quickly, given that I restrained myself from lingering too long on each volume. Some volumes, as you'll see if you ever have a look at some of the books, you can just, you could flip through them for hours. I mean, reading the little notes, trying to decipher annotations. Um, as Anne said, there are lots of things tucked in the pages. <clears throat> so I began the process of cataloging the collection by creating a spreadsheet in which to record details such as um, title, author, publisher, date, I became familiar with a great many publishing houses and their colophons, which I found very interesting. I don't know why. I took a lot of pictures when I did this. I sort of tend to document everything. And for some reason, I found these colophons really spoke to me. Some of the war era books. Anybody know who this is? Random hands, yeah. And this one. This was uh, Abby Hoffman's book, which is kind of fun. Um, <clears throat> then I recorded the condition. Uh, good, fair, fragile. Some of the books were not in great shape, with torn dust jackets that needed to be preserved because they had annotations actually written on them, the dust jackets themselves. Some of the books had fragile bindings, uh, just by virtue of their hard use over the years. Um, <clears throat> ownership was another um, entry in my inventory. So whose name was in the book? In this case, as you can see, uh, Marshall. Arts 32 was his program at the University of Manitoba. Uh, there's his phone number, and Locker 66 was apparently his. Um, a couple years ago, I drove out west, 
And on my return, I stopped through the University of Manitoba um, on a whim because I'd never seen it. Um, and I met with somebody and asked them, do you know where I would find Locker 66? <laughs> yeah, no, not, not a chance. Um, <clears throat> so sometimes it was Marshall's name, and it might include the date and location of purchase, or his address and school details. Um, occasionally there was somebody else's name. With this information, we can see the sort of books which he bought in his university days in Manitoba, uh, and the ones he bought in England when he studied at Cambridge. Considering both the expense of acquiring these books on a very tight student's budget, and the trouble of taking these books home with him, one can imagine that these were important works. Many of the Cambridge books contained uh, longer bits of writing, sometimes excerpts from lectures written in his very neat cursive, which was typical of his early years. As time went on, he developed short forms for words, and his handwriting moved away from cursive to faster printing, uh, more scrawling. Um, I took a picture almost every time I saw his name written because it's really neat how much variety there is. Sometimes it's H.M. McLuhan, sometimes it's H. period, M. period. Um, sometimes he wrote it, although that may not be his writing. Uh, and I guess he got tired of writing it and got a stamp eventually. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, also, uh, many books were gifts from people Marshall admired, and vice versa. So these books sometimes contained a note to him from them. And some of those include, um, as we see here, Etienne Gilson, uh, to H. McLuhan, These Non-Mechanical Brides, um, W. K. Winsat, um, that's him here, I believe, Bill, as, as he called, This Distillation of Old Hat, published in one of the very last years of the Gutenberg era. Uh, Harley Parker. Um, was a neighbor of, of Marshall and Corinne's uh, at Witchwood Park. He actually lived just around the corner, not really in the park. But um, they collaborated on many things. Uh, and he was seen around the Center for Culture and Technology quite often. Here we have uh, R. Murray Schaefer, uh, Eric Havelock. Um, they were colleagues at the university. Uh, and Wyndham Lewis, uh, the author and painter whose work Marshall greatly admired, um, and they had a very long-standing relationship uh, from St. Louis to the Marshall. <clears throat> so I made note of these, um, and in most cases I reproduced um, those dedications in my spreadsheet. Um, sort of for my own edification, really, but also just for ease of searchability after the fact. So if somebody had asked me about it, I'd be able to answer the question without somebody having to actually come here and take the book out and look at it. Uh, then I would make a note of the degree of annotation. Some books were very heavily annotated uh, with underlining and marginalia. Sometimes extra pages of notes were inserted. 
and some books had little to no annotation at all. In the case of books which have no annotation, there are still things of note. The fact that Marshall found little to comment on does tell us that there was little content with struck, which struck him as worth remark. Um, and keep in mind that Marshall was not shy about pointing out errors or places where he disagreed with the author. Um, there is obviously much to be said about the annotations in these books, and I'll say a bit more about it later. I, I also I don't think Marshall kept many books if they didn't mean anything at all to him. So the fact that he held on to it does, does mean something. Um, <clears throat> there's also a space for additional contents in my inventory. Um, as Anne said, these were pulled from the books and placed in separate files, um, probably to preserve the binding of the books because some of them were really stuffed full. Um, and I gather there are place marks where the things were pulled from the books so that you can see where they were. There you go. Um, so Marshall would sometimes clip a review, most often from the New York Times book review, of the book in question. These would be tucked into the book along with other ephemera. No idea why he would tape this in a book, but um, he must have found it funny. Uh, when a book was a gift or a review copy from a publisher, there was often that person's card tucked in. Sometimes there would be a letter or postcard. One of the highlights of doing the inventory was coming across a letter to Marshall from Ezra Pound. While this typed letter is illustrative of the relationship between the two men, um, it is perhaps more indicative of Pound's personality. Um, Ezra Pound in the Cantos was the book I pulled out of a box, and I opened it up and taped inside the cover was this envelope, which of course I opened, and here was this two-page typed letter, which was really more of some kind of bizarre poem, I think. It's postmarked Washington, D.C. Um, and I think at the time he was in an insane asylum. Right. Um, I did a, by the way, I did a blog, um, a WordPress blog, I'll put the address up later, um, of some of the more interesting things I came across. Um, and this is one of the things that um, I took the time to make an entry. So if you want to read the letter, it's actually up there. It's, I love it. Um, following his death, Marshall's papers by and large went to the National Archives in Ottawa. This amounted to a few filing cabinets worth of letters, essays, drafts of books. But some things remain tucked into the pages of books in his library, such as this letter from Ezra Pound. So how it would go would be that I would take a box from the stack in the barn and bring it back to Dad's study, to the large, heavy desk I used, and start to unpack it volume by volume. Oh, there's the address. <clears throat> I would catalog the publishing data then have a look inside the covers and make a note of the degree of annotation. Following that, I would flip through the book to see whether it contained any additional contents and make a list of those where present. 
Thus it went that Ezra Pound in the Cantos by Harold H. Watts was discovered. Marshall made many notes in this book, um, but he also placed that letter. As I made my inventory, I took a lot of photos because I do have an inherent need to document and because I did not know whether I'd see any of these things again. Um, also because I thought others might be interested. Um, when I started doing the inventory, um, Dad knew that the library was going somewhere. We didn't know where it was, so it, it really could have been anywhere, including outside Canada. Um, another of the items I shared on my blog was finding Marshall's note in a collection of essays from source to statement, which included Marshall's essay, The Medium is the Message, a reprint from Understanding Media. As a side job while I did the inventory, I was also making notes of instances where I came across reprints of Marshall's work and cross-checked them against the bibliography that my dad's been compiling for years. So when I found a reprint of The Medium is the Message, I checked to make sure the page references were correct. And that's where I found a note in pencil, made by Marshall, where he says that he first made this statement. Um, first used this phrase in June, question mark, 1958, at Radio Broadcasters Conference in Vancouver, was reassuring them that TV could not end radio. So speculation as to where Marshall first said the medium is the message um, is put to rest, I think, by the author's own notation. Um, another entry in my um, inventory uh, is the University of Toronto Library shelf location. So here we have Marshall and his uh, first secretary, I believe, Mark Stewart, um, in his library on St. Joseph Street before he moved across to the Centre for Culture and Technology. Um, and Margaret is responsible for the first inventory of Marshall's books. Mm -hmm. She devised a system of keeping track of where books should be so that she could keep some semblance of order um, so she could put books back where they belonged. Um, her finding aid is useful as it reflected where Marshall placed books, um, which reflected the way he felt they related to one another. By perhaps virtually recreating the original layout of the shelves in Marshall's first library and placing the books on them, we would be able to get a sense of that, which would be a really interesting project. The last field in my inventory was where I noted the book's destination. That is, which box it was being packed into after being catalogued. Um, in the case of books which came from Eric's shelves, I also noted uh, where it came from, which shelf. Uh, this, in the spirit of preserving Eric's feelings on the relation of books to each other, which is similar to Marshall's. Um, I wasn't sure how long things were going to be in their new boxes, so I wanted to be very particular about knowing 
which book was where, especially if Dad said to me, oh, where is that T.S. Eliot? It's not on my shelf. Do you know where it is? So I could get it for him if, if he needed it. <clears throat> I had begun the inventory with the boxes of books which were in storage in the McLuhan's barn. They were the priority, as while they were sheltered from rain and snow, it was hardly an ideal storage situation, as we have here. Uh, also, they had not been packed particularly carefully, so some of the boxes were overfilled and not holding up too well. I had moved the bulk of them from Witchwood Park following my grandmother Corinne's death, and basically took them as they were. So they sat in this big red barn, protected from the worst of the elements, until I began my inventory. Most of them had not seen the light of day since the Center for Culture and Technology closed. I've likened opening these boxes to opening a long-buried treasure chest, and that's really what it felt like. Uh, I really had no idea what I would find in any given box other than printed material of some kind. Some boxes were relatively boring, while others were very exciting, such as the box which contained the book <clears throat> with the pound letter. Conducting my inventory in the smaller barn, which had been converted to Eric's study, he was also able to stare, uh, share in the joys of the task. He would come over to my desk when a new box was being opened and remark on the contents. Oh, that's a big one, was often heard. Many of these books were big ones. Um, and it's not hard to see through the degree of annotation which were the mo more important books to Marshall, but all his books were important to his work. In order to appreciate the value of these books to Marshall McLuhan, um, you have to see them as more than simply a collection of books. His was a working library. These books, um, and without their active participation, their authors, were Marshall's most important long-standing collaborators. This is not to minimize the importance of his human collaborators, but to highlight how Marshall's working library was at the very least a collaborator of equal importance. In my opinion, the hallmark of Marshall's genius lay in his ability to make connections which others missed, in many cases the very authors of the books. The annotations are largely a record of the connections he made. He'd read a passage, and if he found it significant or worthy of note, he might underline or otherwise mark it. If that passage led to a connection or an insight, he might flip to the front or the back cover and make a note with a page reference and continue reading. Later, he might revisit this or that annotation and flesh it out to be the basis or part of an essay. Often, he would be looking for specific things. For instance, he was always alert for instances of figure and ground. He would use the shorthand F slash G to mark it. And he had other short forms. Uh, Mead slash slash MSG for medium is the message. Um, TOC, theory of communication. Um, C slash M versus C dash M is center without margin versus center or margin. 
Um, if you want to know what that means, you have to ask my dad because I don't really understand that language. Uh, Gutgal for Gutenberg Galaxy and many others. There are also many notations I came across which just struck me for one reason or another as significant. Some are funny, typical Marshall, no police like Holmes. Um, some are whimsical, um, and some simply incomprehensible. Oh, this one's fun. These two books owe their condition to a shipwreck at the mouth of the Red River, August 29th, 1930. Marshall had built a sailboat and apparently it capsized, um, but he saved his books. This is probably one of the favorite things I came across. Just a slip of paper tucked in. We don't seem to be able to escape the flip-flop. Anyway. <laughs> but taking on the creation of this inventory allowed me another sort of entry into the life and work of Marsha McLuhan. Um, it would enhance an already amazing privilege that of being able to get to know my grandfather after his death. Because he was such a public figure, there are many photos and videos of interviews to browse, aside from his own writing. But he also touched many lives on a very personal level through his work as a professor, uh, through the many speeches he gave. So over the years, I've been fortunate to meet people who were not very close with him, but Often they had a class with him at the University of Toronto or even only met him once, but remember that meeting and what was said and how a few words changed their perception in their lives. I get the same thing a lot from people who've met my father. Because of Eric's close working relationship with Marshall, I was able to consult him on many things while making my inventory. He helped me become able to read Marshall's handwriting and tell me things like TOC means theories of communication and the like. Eric's input was essential to fleshing out the inventory, deciphering some of the handwriting short forms, adding some context. In the process, I learned much more about both my father and grandfather and the relationships as father-son, teacher-student, and as co-authors and collaborators. I think that's shortly after Marshall and Corinne were married. I really like that picture. So the first part of the inventory was to catalog the boxes of books and repack them more efficiently and securely. These new boxes were all numbered and their contents accounted for. The second part of the inventory would be to go through all the books in Eric McLuhan's library and identify the books which were part of Marshall's working library. Removing these books from Eric's library would be a blow to him. These were his father's collaborators, and they'd become his. He had his own relationship with them. They were also important to his work, and he had some of his notes in them, sometimes alongside his father's, sometimes on inset pages, Giving them up would have to have been a very hard thing to do, but it was his decision, and I believe it was the right one. 
Uh, sorry, that's Marshall and Edmund Ted Carpenter, um, who worked together for many years, especially on explorations. Uh, for my own part, I was not crazy about the idea of losing the library, especially after I finished the inventory and had a much greater appreciation of its worth. And even though I haven't tried to follow in those huge footsteps and be the third generation to use those tools, the thing is, Marshall's working library had become an artifact deserving of study, which one person could not hope to undertake the entirety of. Of the over 6,000 items in the inventory, I believe it averages out to something like a postgraduate level thesis in each one. Some of the volumes, like the heavily annotated copies of Finnegan's Wake, are so packed with annotation as to keep an entire team busy for years. Taken as a whole, there are many avenues of exploration what the library meant to Marshall's work, and exploring how it contains a record of one of the world ma world's major thinkers' intellectual development, because Marshall read his books many times over the years, and his annotations reflect how he gained uh, new insights in subsequent readings. Once he becomes somewhat familiar with his handwriting, you can see how it changed over the years. Thus, you can get an idea of what he made note of in, say, the 1930s, and what he made note of in the 1960s or 70s. There are many avenues of exploration here for future biographers which have yet to be considered. Wouldn't it be interesting to write a biography of Marshall McLuhan based on what can be gleaned from his personal library and his relationship with it? The possibilities are almost limitless. The value to scholarship, immense. The library, as an artifact, is almost unique. I'm not sure that there are many similar examples, and I think that given the age we live in, there may never be another quite like it. Starting this inventory, I didn't know where the books would end up. There was interest from many quarters, an international interest. There was my own interest as well. I dreamed for a while of trying to raise a few million dollars to convert the big barn into a state-of-the-art facility to house the books and make them available for study, and, you know, to keep them close. The thought that they might end up at some inaccessible institution, possibly far away, was horrifying. But when it came down to it, it was not my decision, which is probably a good thing. Uh, because I truly believe that this collection needed to be available for study and possible further development, there was really no better place I can imagine than here at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. I love that Fisher is at U of T, yet has a certain distance from it. You don't need to be a student or an academic to access books here. This allows virtually anyone who can make the trip to Toronto to be able to study Marshall's library and make their own discoveries and perhaps become a collaborator of Marshall McLuhan. Marshall chose to spend the majority of his career at the University of Toronto when he certainly had more lucrative offers. Even if the university didn't always treat him very well, especially when he was most vulnerable after his last stroke, he was able to do a lot of great work on this campus that he might not have been able to do elsewhere. 
Anne Dondertman, on behalf of Fisher, has been a pleasure to work with in the process of transferring the books to their new home. She is a person who cares about her work and cares about doing right by this legacy of Marsha McLuhan. It is largely due to her that this is now the library's home. Mr. Henry Rodriguez also deserves mention, though he's the sort who would rather not be mentioned. He has been close to our family for many, many years, and his advice and efforts have also played a large part in making Fisher the new home of the McLuhan Library. He's one of those rare people who believe in making a positive contribution in this world and who selflessly devote much time and energy to causes he deems worthy without any expectation of anything except helping to reach a worthy goal. Special thanks go to Mr. Jerry O'Grady, who was responsible for raising some funds which helped pay my bills while I made the inventory. Um, but the person who is most responsible for Fisher becoming the home of Marshall McLuhan's working library is, of course, Marshall's eldest son, Eric McLuhan. He has done what I'm not sure I would have been able to do. He has let the library go. He inherited it and kept much of it working over the years, using it as a resource that it is in the way it was used by his father, keeping it alive. It is difficult to appreciate what letting it go means to him. With the opening of the collection here at Fisher, an exciting new era is beginning for Marsha McLuhan's working library. Already, some people have been able to access certain volumes for research. It's very exciting to me to imagine how many people might use these tools and what they might do with them. The possibilities are endless. I'm looking forward to seeing what people do with the books and their contents and maybe hearing new stories on how my grandfather impacted people's lives, not through Monday night seminars, talks and classes or chance meetings, or through the books he wrote, but through the books he cherished. I can't help but think that Marshall would be pleased. Thank you very much. Everything's fired up. Thank you. My goodness. Very well. Why don't we just take one minute, stand up, and stretch? Okay, don't get too used to it now. <laughs> yeah, seventh inning stretch. Well, Andrew did a wonderful job, I think, of introducing these materials and discussing his uh, involvement with them. There's not a whole lot I can add to that, but I'm not skating out of the opportunity to say a few words. Uh, <clears throat> when I sat down to pen some notes for this occasion, the main problem was how to get into the topic. 
And I started thinking, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself now because there's so many trained librarians here. But I started thinking a little bit about kinds of libraries. Uh, because this isn't the kind that you come across very often. And it struck me there's one very basic division in the world of libraries. On one side you find public libraries, and on the other side you find private libraries. And that's about the only reasonable thing I can say about libraries. After that it goes crazy. There are all kinds of libraries. Libraries form with the same structures as crowds. Uh, as Elias Canetti pointed out in Crowds and Power, any collection uh, exhibits crowd behavior. A million bucks exhibits crowd behavior. A record collection, a library. Some libraries are open. They will gobble anything. They're hungry. Just let a book come within a block and suddenly it disappears and it's over in the library. Other libraries are closed, like closed crowds. They have a very specific theme. Uh, they have a particular sort of entry requirement. Not any book can uh, be part of this collection, only those that relate to, say, Edgar Allan Poe or Winston Churchill or Marshall McLuhan. Uh, <clears throat> Another way to group libraries is according to their purpose. Some are sentimental collections. And there are a few sentimental books in my father's library, books that he acquired from his mother, uh, books that uh, my mother got when her family died off. and. Uh, so they entered into the library. These, there aren't very many of these, but it's another kind of library, a sentimental library. This one is largely composed, I'd say 80%, 85% as a working library. That means every book in there is a tool. And its position in there is determined by its usefulness as a tool. It has ideas, it has ways of imagining, ways of approaching subjects that uh, you can use, learn from, put to work in your own area of study. Use someone else's imagination to open up the matters that you're investigating. Books can do this with you, for you. There are a few libraries built around special topics a period, a figure, an interest, a style, a practice, manner of writing. And some libraries are just aesthetic. My father's library could never be confused at being aesthetic. It's far too chaotic. And the chaos makes it interesting. <clears throat> One of the things I learned from working with Andrew over the inventory was that the disorganized box of books is far more interesting than the organized box. You open the flaps of an organized one, you know what you're going to get. Top to bottom, side to side, front to back, it's going to be Wordsworth or somebody. On the other hand, you open one and you say, oh boy, look at this. 
And underneath it, hey, that's where that went. And uh, you start to meet all sorts of old friends. And the fact that they're all together, they've been talking behind your back all these years, <laughs> has a kind of charm and interest of its own. But a collection. Is it a collection? Is the library a collection? Or is it just a pile of useful things? Like public and private sorts them out. Was this library assembled by design or randomly? And in the case of the library of Marshall McLuhan, it's all of the above. He was not a collector. But if he found something valuable, he'd hang on to it. Uh, about uh, 80%, I say, were working. Some were collected. He knew a few writers and uh, collected their books. He knew Lewis, Wyndham Lewis, collected his. He knew the mystery writer, Ross MacDonald, John Ross MacDonald. Uh, whom he met in Santa Barbara one year. And he collected Ross's things, and Ross would send him books, and he'd send them to Ross. Did the same thing with Walter Ong, a man he worked with at St. Louis. Uh, and they traded their books every time they published a new one. Walter would send one up to Dad, he'd send one down to Walter. So they must have a pretty good collection down there in St. Louis. I know they have Walter's things. He also collected uh, Earl Stanley Gardner. He really liked his writing style, who wrote the Perry Mason novels and uh, wrote another series under the pseudonym A.A. A. Fair. Uh, Agatha Christie, Leslie Charteris, who wrote the Saint series of stories, which, by the way, are much better than the book and some of the terrible TV series. I recommend her better than the book, better than the movie, and better than the TV series. I do recommend the same books. They're very dated style and uh, quite enjoyable. Also, he collected uh, Dorothy Sayers and a bunch of writers of that period. Uh, then also in it, Eric Havelock and Harold Dennis. Uh, some of these uh, books by these people, he has signed copies, others just his own copies. Some books he, re he would read once in whole or in part and shelf or pitch it out. Some he would read and annotate and consult over and over and use. Um, I learned from him that the value of a book is only slightly, in very slight measure, uh, how recent it is, how au courant the book or the expressions in it happen to be. The real value has to do with what it opens up, what areas, what fields, what kinds of workings of the imagination does this book or this set of operations lay bare for you. And when you are working on a project, 
you think, gee, I need something to open up this or that aspect of what I'm working on. I know, just the guy. Let's get that thing by, by Havelock. Or dig out something by Ennis, or Lewis Mumford, or any of a hundred other people. Or Francis Bacon. The fact that a book was old didn't make it less useful. Uh, there's some pretty great things discovered 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago. They're just sitting there waiting for someone to come along and put them back to work. Uh, so that's another reason for having your own library. It can take you a lifetime sometimes to get to the bottom of a particular piece of writing. Books for my father were repositories of ideas and associated material. So you'd be liable to find an annotation made on a napkin, a scrap of paper, a hunk of envelope, all the cliches. Uh, but the books were files, filing folders, filing cabinets in some cases. We mentioned Finnegan's Wake. <clears throat> Sometimes a book could not hold all the annotations you had to make, so you'd get another copy. <laughs> and keep going. I believe I gave the university four copies of Finnegan's Wake. I've got a few of my own, and there are a few we have that we didn't put any annotations in. Uh, John Culkin in New York at one point had paperback copies of Finnegan's Wake rebound with between each page of print a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> the paperback copy is originally about inch and a quarter. The rebound come to three volumes. Three separate volumes. They're beautiful. He had them even bound in green one. And you don't have them. <laughs> I've hung on to them. We, we could never bring ourselves to put a mark in these lovely volumes. Um, but that's rare. Many, many of the books in his library and mine we both used. And so they carry both of our annotations, both of our handwriting. Uh, it's very easy to tell the two apart. One is quite obviously that of a junior. Uh, <clears throat> Some books that he got were so compelling, he got so excited, that he wanted to encourage a lot of his friends to have a look. Like, read this thing, it's got stuff in it that you can really enjoy, you'll have fun with. So what do you do? You only have one copy. You go out and buy five or six or eight or ten more. And he did. Um, the one that comes to mind immediately is a book called The Presence of the Kingdom by Jacques Ellul. Uh, Ellul wrote the, uh, wrote the book on propaganda. It's called Propaganda. Uh, and it's never been bettered. It, was, it came out in 64, or 63. Uh, and it's still 
head and shoulders above anything else that's been done in the field. Uh, there's an example of an old book that is still new. There are a lot of them around. I have nothing but sympathy for poor guys coming up through the professoriate these days who know only the most recent, only the latest stuff. Lord, what they're missing. <laughs> um, that's, there's not a whole lot I can add to what Andrew was saying. So why don't I open it up for questions at this point? Does anybody have any questions for either of us or Anne or anyone else? You have 10 seconds. <laughs> yes. Eric, Hello, uh, Mike. my question is more to Andrew, I think, but... Uh, sure. Uh, uh, myself is a student of Marshall. Anybody else here? Mike, Marshall would always say, you don't need to read the book just on page 69. <laughs> <laughs> or he was, uh, uh, just read the uh, even number of pages. Yeah. So, my, anyway, my question is, Andrew, <clears throat> as you looked at the volumes, well, I think he generally started at page one. Um, I, I've heard that comment that he would say, you know, if you want to know something about a book, turn to page 69 or whatever. If that's no good, forget about it, you know. Um, it could be page 32 for that matter. Um, and I'd also heard the comment about um, he only read the right-hand page. Well, he annotated on both. Um, I think he, from what my dad has told me, he would do that. He said, um, uh, for really good books, um, he only read the one page um, because uh, it would keep his mind busy filling in the rest. <laughs> That might be an exaggeration, I don't know. His, his reading habits, I mean, I, I read a lot and I get bugged about it because I spend a lot of time reading, but he read a lot. I mean, he started his day reading the Bible in English, French, Greek, Italian, whatever he could get his hands on, um, just as mental wake-up exercises. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, but apparently back in the 60s, there was a bumper sticker that said, Marshall McLuhan reads books, as if this was a big joke, um, because people were under the impression that, you know, he thought books were dead, they're over, what do you need books? Well, that's obviously not what he thought. Um, but I've tried for a long time to see even an image of that bumper sticker, but I never have. Has anybody ever seen it? No. Maybe it was just a joke, like laughing or something. If you find one in your garage. Yeah. <laughs> Bob? I'll just tell one quick story and then ask my question. Marshall had a table in front of the mural with all kinds of books piled up. And he once said to me, this is for the librarians in the crowd, he said, I can never find my own books. I'm so happy to go to the library because I know I can find something there. <laughs> so that's his salute to librarians. My question is, um, did he collect his own books? And did he reread them and annotate them? 
He did not collect his own books. He happened to have copies of them, which isn't quite the same thing. <clears throat> did he read them? Yes. Um, for every book he wrote, he kept an open folder in his notes because the moment a book was published was not the end of the story. It was just that phase. Uh, no subject was ever closed. I can say that. He went back and read some of his books a number of times. Um, the one that comes to mind most often in that regard is Take Today, The Executive is Dropout, which he wrote with Barry Nevitt. Uh, or rather, which Barry Nevitt wrote down after having spent a day talking with my father. So, and Barry's way of writing was that he'd take his notes home to his place and sit down and write and then come back tomorrow, the next day, with another bunch of headings and topics to discuss. But Dad never saw the manuscript or the typescript. So he had to wait until the book was published and then he grabbed a copy <laughs> and started making notes. There are two copies. One of them is in the library here. I leave you to imagine where the other one is. Yes. There are quite a few recordings in the collection. Uh, I don't think they've been listened to or cataloged yet. Is that what you were asking? Yes. Yeah. Good. In the library near the fish. Yes. Wonderful. You may change your mind when you've heard something. <laughs> Sir? Uh, I'm wondering uh, how wide ranging, or shall we say, Catholic is the collection? For example, national science, uh, politics, uh, Bible study, what languages, uh, mm -hmm. uh, range of uh, publication rates? All right. He read everything. He read in English, Latin, French, German, a bit of Greek, and a scattering of other European languages. Um, but most comfortable in English, French, German, Latin. Maybe in that order. <clears throat> As to topics, he started out his university career as an engineer. Got a summer job working part-time or working at a site for a dam as an engineer, a rod man on a surveying crew. Nothing to do in the evenings, so he started reading literature, went back in the fall and changed his major from engineering to English literature. Um, he was pretty well versed in Bucky Fuller's work, uh, which is one big foot in engineering, and uh, got to know Bucky pretty well. <clears throat> but once he moved his attention over to the arts, he stayed there pretty much. He wasn't afraid of reading anything at all, and he would. His technique, by the way, that page 69 or 96 in the book, uh, was like the chef sampling a soup. You don't always have to take it from the corner where the handle is. I mean, just pick a spot, take a sample there. If the soup's any good, it'll be consistent all the way through, bottom, top, left, right. Same with the book. If it's any good, it should be consistent pretty much all the way through. 
So if you pick a page like 69 or 96, it's like an archaeologist saying, okay, we've got this big site to look at, let's dig a trench here. It's random. Uh, all you know when you're going to turn to page 69 is that we'll have a 69 on it. <laughs> and that's all. Uh, and it worked pretty well. Uh, if it was halfway interesting, you'd try another page. Then another. Next thing you know, you're reading it. Yes? Oh, he was among the promoters of the everything that often criticized for not using Kunobi. So, can you say a little bit about his relationship to Kunobi? Yeah, you that's, want to do it? No, that's you. Oh, come on. Did you the question? Can I answer the question? Did he have a fa special view? Um, as to footnoting his own stuff, he would supply footnotes as best he could. Sometimes it wasn't that good. Um, he was very careful to read the footnotes in books that he was reading now, because as every writer knows, you'll find all sorts of goodies in the footnotes. Uh, well, it depends on the writer. Some writers are pretty pedestrian and boring in their footnotes, and others are pretty lively. Harold Ennis, his, his books sparkled with ideas in the footnotes. They were everywhere. Uh, things that he hadn't had time to chase down, but he knew that there was a good point or a good lead, he put it in there for the reader. Uh, one of those things we came across was called The uh, Invention of Space. He referred to an essay by F.M. Cornford, instead, called The Invention of Space. Well, we were working on laws of media at the time, so we got The Invention of Space essay out of the library. Lo and behold, it was gold. It was wonderful stuff. So footnotes are great. Um, he used to let his critics correct his footnotes for him. He told me once, don't ever badmouth your critics. They're your greatest friends. They'll go through your books with a fine-tooth comb and find every single shred of error and mistake and so on that you've made. He said, you couldn't hire a team of people to do that. <laughs> and they'll work for free. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure there was anything in particular. I think it was just a matter of degree. I mean, um, you know, I, I knew he liked his books. I knew he wrote in them. Um, I knew they were important to him. But uh, And I, I still, when considering the collection, come up with different applications for the library, um, different things that could be done, like the biographer trying to write a biography based only on what you can gain from inside his books. Um, there's, there's so much that can be done. Um, I don't know if there, there was 
some some of those footnotes like we can't escape the flip flop things like that. Um, I I knew he he was whimsical, but I didn't. I, I suppose I didn't uh, realize he could move into absurdity quite so often. Unfortunately, making puns, I think it's genetic. Uh, you don't want to visit either of our houses if you're not a fan of, of bad jokes. Uh, puns. Well, that too. Indeed. Yes, sir. Marshall was famously quoted as saying, you have only the right hand page of serious books. And he kept them very busy trying to determine the form of the left no, as I said, and I, I was watching out for things like that, um, but I don't, I don't believe there are any examples. Does that mean that none of the books he annotated both pages he considered serious books? I don't think so. I think the remark was, you know, not, not meant to be taken precisely literally. Can I pitch in at yeah. this point? No, go ahead. On the other hand, <laughs> uh, there, there were two parts to the remark. One was, yes, on, on serious books, I just read the left-hand page. But on unserious books, like detective stories, I read every page. <laughs> it's true. When you're working, you don't need every word. If you write a lot of books, and you know writers, and you hang around them for a while, and editors, you realize there's a lot of redundancy in books. But books are written for people who read slowly and who are not that attentive. And there's a whole process of making sure that every new book has, has that audience and those tendencies, those proclivities in mind. So when you read just one page, and not the entire page, by the way, you shouldn't read more than two-thirds. And I recommend you try this when you get home. Try it for a week and see if it doesn't work well. Two-thirds of one page, it doesn't matter, pick left or right, just be consistent. Two-thirds of the page will give you a snapshot of what the writer has in mind, what the writer's thinking about. So you skip a page, try the next left-hand page, it's repeating a lot of the same things. Flip it over, try the next page. There's a few new ideas, a lot of repetition. Repetition and examples and so on. So you find you can go through a book very quickly with this technique, get everything that the writer has to say, and get it much more economically in short form. Try it. So again, thank you very much um, for coming and thanks for Thank you for having us.
And um, please join us for some refreshments now.